So there is a doctrinal dimension to this and a moral dimension. There's a, an issue of orthodoxy here and an issue of orthopraxy here. There's an issue of belief here and behavior here. Those things always go together. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church, located in St. John's County, Florida, just south of Jacksonville and a short distance from St. Augustine. The sermons on this podcast are preached weekly at Christ Reformed, and we'd love for you to join us for worship. Let me tell you a little bit about our church. Three words can help describe our church in simple terms. First, we are confessional. We endorse and teach from both the Westminster Standards along with the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Second, we are expositional. Our church's ministry focuses on the expository preaching of God's Word. Currently, I'm preaching through the Gospel of Mark. Third, we are intentional. This church was established in early 2016 with the intention of focusing on the ordinary means of grace. It is the study of God's Word, prayer, and the sacraments that remain our focus as a church. So, if you are interested in a confessional Reformed Church plant intentional to focus on the simplicity of ministry, you may want to consider visiting us. Our meeting address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. We are located less than three miles from Interstate 95 and less than two miles from Extension 9B. We are just south of Julington Creek. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, as well as articles and a podcast I host focusing on church history and theology, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com. Now, let's take our Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Mark for our sermon this week. Mark chapter 3. I want you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I want to pick up in verse 13, and I'll just read through verse 19. Although by now you ought to have this memorized. Verse 13, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might walk with him and be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Please be seated and we will bow briefly for prayer asking for the Lord's help. Father, we are grateful for this passage of Scripture. Lord, we have lived and moved and had our being in this passage of Scripture over the last several weeks and we trust that your blessed Holy Spirit has etched upon our hearts these eternal truths that we must recognize, Lord, if we are going to walk in a manner that pleases you, Lord, as we look at the lives of these apostles and in many ways learn not only from, negatively speaking, uh, things that we ought not to do, but also positively, Lord, in what they have set before us as models of godliness. So please grant us grace, grant us mercy, all of us here, point us to Christ even beyond these men, because in studying these men, we are really studying your work of grace in their hearts. So help us to recognize that, understand that. To your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I've said so many times before, I think I need to say it again, because we do have some visitors here with us this morning. In studying the lives of these apostles, we are really studying the character of God's grace. We're studying the work of God's grace in these men. All of these men have had glaring character flaws that uh, would have remained if it wasn't for the grace of God, the mercy of God, the redemption of God, and washing them from their sins. As we saw in the calling of these apostles, and we've looked at one by one their callings, we have seen that it has been a sovereign calling. Matthew is a wonderful example of that. Matthew is sitting at a tax booth doing his work and Jesus says, follow me. He leaves his job at that point immediately and follows Christ. That is the sovereign, irresistible grace of God to call Matthew to himself and change him from a tax collector, which was a sinner of the greatest of magnitude in that culture, to be one that followed Christ. In many ways, that is us. That is us in our depravity, in our hopelessness. We were not seeking Christ. 
He sought us by His mercy, by His grace, for His glory, so that we would follow Him. And we have looked at each one of these apostles. The next two apostles listed in Mark 3 are Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot. Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot. And I think that their lives provide for us So much needed instruction on the Christian's understanding of the nature of God's kingdom. The Christian's understanding of the nature of God's kingdom. This naturally then raises some very practical questions you're probably even raising in your minds at this moment about the earthly kingdoms of this world. Questions like this. If Christ has an eternal kingdom, number one, how should Christians view the civil government God ordains for them to be under? Secondly, what role does God's kingdom play with respect to the civil magistrate? Number three, how do Christians respond to governmental overreach? That's a practical question today. Number four, how involved should Christians get into politics? Now, these are practical questions, and I'm just going to tell you up front, I'm not going to answer these questions in detail. That is not my job this morning, and it's not my stated desire. But what I do want to provide for you is some framework from which to operate from so that you can come to some conclusions on those questions. And when we come to the end, I will try to answer those four questions in somewhat of a general way that I pray and hope will be helpful. So we want to look at Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot. Now, just by way of review, so far we have looked at Peter and we have called him the Apostle of Second Chances. We've analyzed Andrew and we've referred to him as the Apostle of Contentment. We've looked at James and John. We've called them the sons of thunder. That's the title that the Bible gives to them. We've considered Philip and Bartholomew. We called them the apostles of patience. Thomas and Matthew, the apostles of loyalty. And last week we looked at James the Less or James the son of Alphaeus. We called him the apostle of minimalism. This morning we want to look at Thaddeus, who I want to call the apostle of maximalism. And Simon the Zealot, the apostle of fanaticism. You'll see why these two go together in a moment. But I believe, to repeat what I said at the beginning, that the testimony of Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot teach Christians some basic truths about Christ as our King of Kings. I think the church needs to recover this basic truth that Christ is the King of Kings. I hope you understand this morning, there is only one King in this world. There is only one king in this world. Regardless of what the media says, regardless of what other pastors may say, regardless of what other people in the world may say, there is one king and one king alone. The Bible says in Hebrews 1 that Christ has been appointed the heir of all things. So there's not only one king, but there is one king over all things. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And in fact, the last book of Scripture, the book of Revelation, that's exactly how he is described in verse 16 of Revelation 19. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. And what is that name? King of kings and Lord of lords. That's how the Bible ends. It ends with a reminder of who is king. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And if you're here this morning and you do not profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I just want you to know He is still your Lord and King. Someday you will bow to Him. You will confess Him as King. Our prayer, our desire for you is that you would do that before the day of your death so that you can know Him salvifically and redemptively. But there is only one King. Now what I want to do is look at each one of these apostles and I'll tell you on the front end, we're going to spend the majority of our time on Thaddeus. Thaddeus is the apostle of maximalism. Remember again that both of these men, Thaddeus and Simon, are men that I think can teach us that basic truth that Christ is the King of Kings. So let's begin number one with Thaddeus. We'll call him the apostle of maximalism. That's a good epitaph for Thaddeus because if James the Less is the apostle of minimalism, I think Thaddeus is that of maximalism. To put it to you in very simple terms, for Thaddeus, It was hard to imagine King Jesus as having any rivals. He desired King Jesus to rule in the most maximum way possible. Thaddeus went by three names. Thaddeus, Lebius, 
and Judas. The fourth century church father Jerome referred to him as Trimonius, meaning the man with three names. And I suppose that from any one of these names, we could derive some quality that may be true about him, but I want to suggest that we don't read too much into these nicknames uh, for good reason. For example, Thaddeus, that name Thaddeus means breast child. That has caused many people to think, I think wrongly, that his nickname was uh, really a matter of ridicule or scorn, akin to our modern day term, mama's boy. He was a breast child. On the other hand, it could be that he was called breast child or called Thaddeus simply because he was the youngest of a large family. There's no reason to think that he acquired that nickname because of something babyish in his character. In fact, I would argue quite the opposite, as you'll see in a moment. His other name was Lebius. That means heart child, or it could be translated man of heart, perhaps uh, signifying that he was a man with a big heart. He, he had a tender heart, a big heart for God and for others. But it's that third name, Judas, Judas, which appears to be his given name. Now, in Mark chapter 3, verse 18, he's referred to as Thaddeus. That's what he's referred to. But in the listings of Luke and Acts, remember I told you there are four listings of the twelve apostles. In the listings of Luke and Acts, he is referred to as Judas, the son of James. That was his given name. Mark calls him here Thaddeus to distinguish him from Judas Iscariot, who is mentioned there in verse 19, Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. So this Judas son of James, or Thaddeus, is called Thaddeus to distinguish him from the bad Judas, that is, Judas, who is referred to in John 14 as Judas Iscariot. And in John 14, this Judas son of James, Thaddeus is referred to as Judas, not Iscariot, to distinguish him from the bad Judas. Now, I would suggest that Thaddeus, and I'll go a little bit according to his names here, did possess a childlike faith and big heart in Christ. I think that he rightly saw Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, the rightful king of the world. And for his part, Simon the Zealot, the other apostle we'll eventually talk about this morning, really had a similar viewpoint seen in his former life, that of a national Jewish zealot. This has led some to think, by the way, in addition to the fact that both of these men are always listed together, some have speculated that they were brothers. They were brothers, and that explains why they're always listed together and may even explain why it appears that they came from a Jewish family that was intensely patriotic because you have Simon the Zealot and you have Thaddeus, who, as we are going to see, had a real zeal to see King Jesus rule over all. As a matter of example, if you're familiar with da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper, some have noted the striking resemblance between Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot. That's not surprise, or supporting evidence to say that they were brothers, but it's simply to say that some throughout history have thought they might have been brothers, and that art piece is an expression of that. In any event, we want to talk about Simon the Zealot later, but for now, let's consider Thaddeus. Some think that he was the apostle or the, the, the author of the epistle we know as the epistle to Jude because his name was Judas and another name for, that, for, that, for him would have been Jude or Judah. I don't think it's best to, to affirm that. I think that the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jude, was the one who wrote that epistle. And that means that we know very, very little about Thaddeus. And you might be wondering, why in the world are you acting like you know so much about him if there's so little that's said about him? Well, I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 14. Because I think John chapter 14 tells us everything we need to know about Thaddeus. Or at least everything that Scripture wants us to know about Thaddeus. And we won't speculate beyond that. John chapter 14. Now I'm going to pick up in the middle... This is obviously Jesus' upper room discourse with the apostles. We don't have time this morning to go into the details of that. I just want to pick up on the section that mentions Thaddeus. We'll pick up in John chapter 14 and verse number 21. 
Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, that is Thaddeus, Judas the son of James, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? There you see implicit in his thinking a desire for King Jesus to reveal his authority over the world. Verse 23, Jesus answered him, sort of. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Sort of a strange response. I want us to consider in this passage the question asked by Thaddeus in verse 22 And then the question answered by Jesus in verses 23 and 24. This is a fascinating passage of Scripture that I think reveals to us what was at the heart of Thaddeus and his thinking and really should be at the heart of our thinking. So let's talk about, first of all, the question asked by Thaddeus. Verse 22, look at it again. Judas, not Iscariot, again, this is Thaddeus, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world. He's identified as Judas, here in verse 22, not Iscariot, to distinguish him from Judas the betrayer, who, by the way, has already left the upper room. He's been excommunicated from the church because he is the one that will betray our Lord. Our Lord will be betrayed this night, but not before he institutes the Lord's Supper, not before he washes the feet of the twelve, including Judas, And not before he gives them this intense discourse on how he plans to manifest himself to the disciples. In fact, the question is rooted in Thaddeus' desire to see Jesus rule visibly over the world. Thaddeus, this breast child, asks this childlike question. And notice Jesus offers no rebuke. This is a legitimate question with an appropriate expectation, and so therefore there is no corresponding humiliation inflicted upon Judas or Thaddeus. The question is, how is it, Lord, that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Now that particular question was rooted in statements Jesus had made earlier. Notice back in verse 19, Jesus said things like this, Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So Thaddeus is is filtering all of this teaching. All right, Christ is going to manifest himself to the disciples. But as verse 19 says, they're going to see him, but the world isn't going to see him anymore. And he's thinking to himself, now wait a second, if you're the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one that we thought you were, confessed you were, and who you said you were, then how in the world are you going to be the king and not manifest yourself to the world? Jesus is emphasizing the revealing of himself to the disciples. Now let me just say, throughout John's Gospel, we often see someone taking a word or phrase of Jesus, misinterpreting it, and then asking a question based upon that misinterpretation. It's not unique to the apostles. We do the same thing all the time. All the time. Let me give you a couple of examples. Back in John chapter 3 and verse 4, Jesus has just said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What does Nicodemus do? He misinterprets that. And then asks a wonky question. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Come on. That's a little bit literalistic and simplistic, isn't it? A little bit short-sighted. Taking a theological statement Jesus makes, misinterpreting it, and then asking a question based upon that misinterpretation and expecting Jesus to answer that? There's another example of this. I'll just give you a couple. Chapter 4, verse 11. There's probably a dozen or more I could give you. Chapter 4, verse 11, Jesus said to the Samaritan woman in verse 10, Give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who was saying to you, Give me a drink. 
The woman then said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Again, overly simplistic and literalistic. He's standing at a well. He's talking about living water. Where are you going to get that water? You're going to draw it up from the well? Again, overly literalistic. Here's a good principle. Don't ever interpret the Bible in an overly literalistic way. It will always get you in trouble. Jesus said, I am the door. That doesn't mean he's a literal door. Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood. He's not literally body and blood. You start thinking overly literalistically and it will lead you into heresy. Nicodemus was on that path till Jesus set him straight. The Samaritan one was on that path till he set her straight. And the Pharisees, they had no hope. Chapter 6 and verse 52, Jesus has just said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give him for the life of the world is my flesh. And the Jews, that's a technical term in the Gospel of John for the religious leaders, then disputed among themselves and said, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Same thing. Simplistic, literalistic, physical, material. Theological statement Jesus makes, misinterpreting it, asking a question based on that misinterpretation, expecting Jesus to answer it the way you want him to answer it. Thaddeus is guilty of that here. In the context, Jesus is speaking about the coming of the Spirit. That much is made clear. Jesus' manifestation, the revealing of himself upon his ascension and exaltation therefore would come primarily through the Spirit, which means that the way He would reveal Himself to anybody would come in a spiritual fashion, not a physical fashion. Don't be overly literalistic. You know what I think? I think that Thaddeus is suggesting here that Jesus should reveal Himself in a very physical way to reveal Himself as a king. Perhaps by performing some miracles. Here's your chance, Jesus, to, before the public, perform all of these miracles. Maybe they won't crucify you. As a matter of fact, Jesus' own unbelieving brothers earlier in John made that very suggestion. At the Feast of Booths in chapter 7, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave here, go to Judea, let's go back home, that your disciples may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. In the Gospel of John, the works refer to the miracles of Christ. Jesus' own brothers want Jesus to go back to Judea, reveal His miracles before the world, so that He reveals Himself as the King of the world. Maybe that's what Thaddeus had in mind. When he asked this question, how is it that you're going to manifest yourself to us and not the world? This doesn't make any sense. By the way, Jesus had already been tempted to do that very thing. You remember in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was tempted by Satan. Third temptation, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and in him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. For Thaddeus to make a suggestion that Jesus needs to be a physical king now on a physical throne was the same thing as a temptation from Satan. Jesus is a little more gentler with Thaddeus. You remember, even Christ, after he was raised from the dead and he was ready to ascend, the disciples were still asking this question. You remember back in Acts chapter 1. When they had come together, verse 6, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? When is the kingdom going to be restored? When are you going to rule physically? Verse 7, Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit there's the Holy Spirit again, will come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So here Jesus gives a clue. My rule, my reign will go to the end of the earth, but it's not going to come the same way you think it's going to come. 
There is a spiritual dimension to this that if you miss, you're actually not part of my kingdom because it proves you can't see my kingdom. You can't see my rule which comes by faith. It appears what Thaddeus is really asking is, Lord, why aren't you going to display your power to us? Why are you going to display your power to us alone and not to the whole world? Restore the kingdom now. Reign as Lord now physically. Show the world. Now let me just say, on a side note, I think this is an excellent question. But Jesus didn't think so. And in fact, he only answers it indirectly. This is not speculative theology. In the upper room, this is not some small group Bible study. This isn't some informal, uh, let's ask the professor our hardest questions and see him dance around it and if he can come up with something. This is a matter of life and death for the disciples. This is practical theology. They had banked their entire physical and spiritual existence on the reality of Jesus as king. And now he's going to die? And no physical rule that they will see? This is world-changing. This is not what they bargained for. This wasn't a time for speculative theology. It was practical theology. Make no mistake about it, Thaddeus wanted the corrupt religious establishment of Israel to be overthrown, and he wanted the yoke of Rome placed upon Israel to be overthrown. He wanted defeat for them, and he wanted victory for Jesus. So the question came from good motives. But he took statements Jesus made, made them wonky, misinterpreted them, asked a question, and then expected Jesus to give the answer he wanted. You can't do that. You can't do that. Why will you not show the world who you are? Remember back in John chapter 4, when Jesus witnessed the gospel to the Samaritan woman, revealed who he was, she was converted, she went and told the Samaritan village, and even the Samaritans explicitly said, this is Jesus, the Savior of the world. How in the world, no pun intended, can Jesus not rule over the world right now? Right now. Jesus began, John 14, verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Well, guess what? Thaddeus' heart is troubled. And really, he's speaking on behalf of the twelve. You may wonder that same question today. Lord, why don't we see your rule more pronounced? When will we see your rule? How will your rule be manifested to the world? Let me just say, these men were Old Testament theologians. They were familiar with verses like Malachi 4.2, which speaks about the Messiah as the Son of Righteousness, S-U-N, the Son of Righteousness who would enlighten the whole world. One of the great themes of, of the Apostle John in John's Gospel is that Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus explicitly said that in John 8.12, I am the light of the world. I have come to reveal myself and manifest myself to the world. So you can understand why Thaddeus would ask this question, can't you? I can. What are you doing? Where is your justice? Where is your sovereignty? Where is your glory? That's the question asked by Thaddeus. But now notice the question answered by Jesus. Sort of. Sort of. Verse 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. My Father will love him. We will come to him, make our abode with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. That's an answer, but really only indirectly. First by a positive reinforcement of everything he's been teaching, and then by a negative reinforcement. Somewhere in this positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement of what he's been teaching is an answer, and I'll do my best to try to show that to you, but remember again what Jesus has been speaking about back in verse 18. You've got to see the context. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. 
Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So here's the positive reinforcement, verse 23. Jesus is repeating what he's already said. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Thaddeus is focused on the physical rule of Christ. Christ is focused on the gospel, is he not? He desires for them to pursue Christ's likeness through continually making progression, listen to this, in their faith. That first phrase of verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. Hmm, that's interesting. Taken out of context, that would make you an Arminian. If we love the Lord and we keep his word, then God will love us. That's what a lot of people think. But in the context, the exact opposite is what Jesus is teaching. Verse 23 as a whole is conditional in the sense that, listen to this, what Jesus is driving at is that experiencing the fullness and depth of love from God is based on our commitment to Him. If you want to experience the depth of God's love, it does have something to do with your love for Him. But the first statement is not conditional, but factional. Factual. Notice again the beginning of verse 23. If anyone loves me, notice this, he will keep my word. That's not a conditional statement. That's a factual statement. That's an unmistakable statement of the fact that God is sovereign over this so that if you love Christ, you will keep His word. God's in control of that. All of this is a repeat of exactly what Jesus said in verse 15. Skip back to that. He said, if you love me, Guess what? You will keep my commandments. That's a statement of fact. True believers that truly love Christ keep his commandments or his precepts. That's the same thing, verse 15, as what verse 23 says when he says, keep my word. To keep his precepts, to keep his commandments, means to keep his word. And later Jesus would be more explicit about the fact That any love we have for Him that results in obedience is rooted in the sovereign, electing love of God. So don't let me lose you here. Turn back to chapter 13 and verse 34. Talking about love... And being devoted to God, Jesus says, verse 34, same context, the upper room, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Okay, great. How does that work? Here's how it works. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. In other words, if you've not experienced the love of God through Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, you won't have the ability to love others. It's God's sovereign, electing love upon us that comes first. Or you could go with me to chapter 17, the high priestly prayer, which comes on the back end of the upper room discourse when Jesus is in the garden. And we have an even clearer statement, John 17, 6. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people, watch this, whom you gave me out of the world. That's the elect people of God. Yours they were, that is, in eternity past, and you gave them to me, and, notice the end of verse 6, they have kept your word. It's an unbroken chain. God chooses who he will in eternity past. He redeems them. He saves them. They will keep his word. They will love him. They will love him. So verse 23 of John 14 is anything but an Arminian verse. In the context, it's the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. Verse 23, the beginning part is not conditional. It's factual. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Those who truly love the Lord, love the Lord because he loved them first. And such reciprocal love produces obedience. Now, the disciples 
are focused on the physical aspect of the kingdom, but clearly Jesus is focused on the spiritual. So he's reinforcing to them the gospel, and he's saying, if you are truly part of my kingdom, you will be able to see me because I've manifested myself to you, and you will see me and my presence so clearly that you'll keep my word and obey me, and when you do that, you are exemplifying the rule of Christ at least over your own life. You're a keeper of the word. This is faith without works is dead. That's just a provocative way of saying that real conviction, real faith, real belief results in keeping God's word. And what does that result in? Notice the rest of verse 23. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my father will love him. And will come to him, and we will make our abode with him. This thought was already stated back in verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So the two doctrines being taught here are the doctrine of union with Christ and the doctrine of communion with Christ. Both go together, but two are, both are distinct. Union with Christ is a sovereign work of God alone that reconciles us to the Father by the Holy Spirit through regeneration, places us in Christ. That union can never be severed. That union can never be broken. But here's the point. Your communion with Christ, or let me put it to you in the, in the words of John 14, your ability to see the presence of Christ will be to the degree that you love and obey him. Because Jesus says, if you keep my word and love me, my father will love you, will come to you and make our abode with you. That's another way of saying, you will experience the presence of the spirit, the presence of Christ, the presence of the father. The father chose, the son redeems, the spirit indwells, All three are there. His presence is there. The manifestation of His power is there. The manifestation of His rule is there. True believers see that. They see Christ on the throne of their hearts and thus they see Christ on the throne of heaven and earth. They're living testimonies to the power of God lived out to the glory of God. So Jesus is saying this is a spiritual thing. Get your eyes off the physical. By the way, that phrase, verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. This phrase right here, and my father will love him, that's in the active. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him. He will be loved by my father, is in the passive. My Father will love him. Eternity past, God set his love upon believers, and that has a present dimension to it. When we love the Father in the present, it's because God's sovereign love was set upon us in the past, and all of that has effects into the present. That's why Jesus would make statements like this. John eight thirty one. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. That proves you're my disciple. It proves that my love is in you because you're demonstrating love to me, love to others. You're keeping my word. All of that is a revelation of the fact that I am in you. You keep my word because I have kept my word to the Father that I would redeem the elect people. 2 John 9, everyone who does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So there is a doctrinal dimension to this and a moral dimension. There's a, an issue of orthodoxy here and an issue of orthopraxy here. There's an issue of belief here and behavior here. Those things always go together. You have right belief, it leads to right behavior. You have Correct orthodoxy, that leads to correct orthopraxy. Faith without works is dead. If God loves you through Christ and you've experienced that, you'll love. It's a statement of fact. But here's the point. The more you obey, the more you love, 
the nearer you are drawn in your communion to Christ and the more your faith is strengthened. The more you see the kingdom, the more you see the king. That's why he says, capping all of this off at the end of verse 23, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. This is God three in one. One God, three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit in you. This is the full power of the presence of God in you. That's why Paul could say, you are hidden in Christ with God. This affirms the believer's union with the Father, with the Son. And we'll throw the Spirit in there because the Spirit is mentioned here. Verse 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. Clearly, the Holy Spirit is being spoken about as well in this context. You're familiar with another thing Jesus said. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. One. Spirit is included. What does all this mean? How does all of this answer Thaddeus' question? By positive reinforcement, Jesus is saying that the presence of God, His manifestation to His people is real, but the experience of that fellowship and the presence of Christ is tied to our communion with Him. Our union can't be broken, but beloved, our communion can ebb and flow to the degree that we love Him will be to the degree that we obey Him and to the degree that we obey Him or keep His Word will be to the degree that we experience the loving presence of God three in one. This is how Christ manifests Himself and His presence to the disciples and not to the world. Do you get the point now of why Jesus is emphasizing I'm going to manifest Myself to My people, to My disciples? Forget about the world. I'm manifesting myself to my people, the ones God gave me from before the foundation of the world. They're the ones that see Christ. They're the ones that know Christ in this intimate way where the Father and the Son make their abode with Him. In fact, verse 23, we will come to Him. Pros is the word used there. Pros Literally in the Greek meaning face-to-face. We will come face-to-face with you. Face-to-face with God? Only through the gospel. Only through the sovereign, regenerating work of God. People say all the time, I've seen God. No, you haven't. I've had a vision of God. No, you haven't. The only people who have seen God are those who have seen Christ. They become face-to-face with God through Christ, through the gospel, through conversion, through regeneration. Those are the ones who are face-to-face with God. Just as Christ was face-to-face with God, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God, face-to-face with God. Jesus, the Word incarnate, was in an intimate relationship, a fellowship with the Father in eternity past. And now, through the Gospel, we have an intimate relationship with this triune God. Unbelievable. Uh, Thaddeus, what was your question about some physical kingdom? The way believers see the presence of Christ's kingly rule is through the gospel. Hearts are changed. The presence of Christ's rule in their lives is made real. And all of this takes faith, which is a gift of God, so that those outside of the kingdom can't see it. Christ hasn't manifested His presence to them. But, listen to this, the more the gospel penetrates the world, The more that souls are saved, the more that the dark veil is removed from the elect of the world, the more the light of Christ and the kingdom of Christ breaks through. The more real His presence, the more intimate His fellowship, the more pronounced His rule. What's the result of that in a dark world? Some would say post-millennialism. Turn back to uh, John 13, verse 34. New commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. 
Implied in that is that you love God. You're not going to love others unless you love God. You're not going to love God unless He loves you. God's not going to love you unless He chose you. It all goes together. Verse 35, by this all people. Who's that? The world. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So there it is. The kingdom of Christ breaking through in the character of God's people, loving God, loving one another, keeping His commandments, keeping His word. So in one sense, the world is in denial regarding the reign of Christ. But that does not overturn Christ's rule over every government, every politician, even if Christ's kingdom has not been consummated yet. Verse 31, the end of chapter 14. Jesus says, I do as the Father has commanded me, which means he's going to go to the cross and die, but he'll be raised, he will ascend. I do as the Father has commanded me. Why? So that the world may know that I love the Father. How does Jesus reveal himself to the world? Through his obedience to the Father to be crucified so that the approval of the Father is placed upon him. He's raised from the dead. He's exalted to the right hand of God to become the King of kings and Lord of lords. And how in the world do we reveal ourselves to the world? Same way, through our obedience. Through our obedience. Our love and devotion for the Father, for the Son, for the Spirit. So the power in seeing Christ's rule lies totally in the gospel. The proclamation of that gospel, the living out of that gospel among the citizens of God's kingdom. Now let me just take you back to Matthew for a moment. Matthew chapter 13. You remember these, these parables. I hope you remember them anyway. And talk about the kingdom. They're pretty important. Matthew 13, verse 31, he put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. In other parables, the seed is the word of God, which is the gospel specifically that spreads in the world. Here you have the seed of a a mustard seed that is planted, which grows and becomes a tree that fills the whole world. There's a progression to the growth of God's kingdom in the world through the seed of the word, we could say. Verse 33, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Same idea, progression, spreading of the word and proclamation and in the production of a Christian life that matches that profession. That's how the kingdom of God is revealed. So we've seen the question asked by Thaddeus and we've seen the question answered by Jesus, a positive reinforcement. Notice quickly with me the negative reinforcement, verse 24. This is the flip side of the coin. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine but the Father's who sent me. So love for him and obedience to him are so inseparable that Jesus makes it clear that those who intimately and salvifically know him are those who love and obey him. He who loves Jesus keeps his word, and he who keeps his word loves Jesus. The other side of the coin is, he who does not love him does not keep his word. It's that simple. It's that simple. John 8, 47. Whoever is of God hears the words of God, and we could say keeps the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Those that can't hear and those that can't see aren't in the kingdom. They don't see the rule of Christ because they don't see with their physical eyes the rule of Christ. But Jesus is ruling. I I don't know if that was a satisfactory answer for Thaddeus on that day. 
but I think eventually it was. I think he came to learn that the rule and the reign of Christ was a matter of faith in Christ, fellowship with Christ, that loving him, loving those in the kingdom would cause the world to know who the true disciples were so that the world would get a glimpse of the kingdom of God as the kingdom grew throughout the world. Christ only directly manifests himself to his disciples first, who then reveal him to the world. We are the prism through which the light shines. I think Thaddeus got that. Tradition says that Thaddeus went to Syria to preach the gospel. He even won the king of Assyria to Christ. Should Christians be involved in politics? I don't know. You tell me. The king was converted to Christ? Some connection there. He understood that kingdom influence comes through the proclamation of the gospel, not not a forced theonomy or, or politics just for politics' sake. But he knew the king, and he witnessed to the king, and the king was converted. The king's son was not a believer and beat Thaddeus to death with a club. That club became a symbol for Thaddeus. He died a noble death. He did not die waving the Israeli flag. He died waving the banner of Christ. He was a warrior for the gospel in a hostile culture. He revealed the rule of Christ through the gospel that he preached and he lived and he did it even at his own cost. That's Thaddeus, the apostle of maximalism. He wanted to see the maximum reign of Christ to the fullest. A good desire, but Jesus had to set him straight and how that would work out. Now, we need to talk about Simon the Zealot, at least for a minute. Simon the Zealot. Thaddeus is the apostle of maximalism, but Simon the Zealot is the apostle of fanaticism. Here in Mark 3.18, well, let's turn back there. We're not there, are we? We need to turn back to Mark 3.18. He's called Simon the Zealot. That's the name that he's given. Matthew 10.3 lists him with that same nickname, (coughs) which means that his identity was that, obviously, of a fanatic zealot. The King James Version calls him Simon the Canaanite, but the Hebrew root for Canaanite means to be zealous. So he was a fanatic Jew. He's partly called Simon the Zealot to distinguish him from Simon Peter, right? But since Peter went by Peter once he met Christ and not Simon... Simon the Zealot could have went by Simon and there would have been no confusion. There's a reason that that nickname stuck with him. There's reason for that. He was a member of the fanatical Jewish party known as the Zealots. Uh, That's a difficult reputation to separate yourself from. Even his conversion to Christ amplified his past even more because of the drastic change that was wrought in his life by the Holy Spirit. So that nickname just stuck. Whereas Thaddeus' theology, I think, clouded his understanding of how Christ's rule would come after he was called to Christ, Simon's fanaticism did the same thing before he was called to Christ. Thaddeus' position resulted in confusion after he came to know Christ, but Simon's resulted in a patriotism gone amok before coming to know Christ. The zealots were one of the sects of Judaism. They were the zealous, fanatical sect. You had the Pharisees, obviously, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and you had the Zealots. They were essentially a terrorist organization operating in guerrilla war tactics. Perhaps Thaddeus prayed for Rome's overthrow, but Simon the Zealot pursued Rome's overthrow before he converted to Christ. They were called the Zealots because... I think you can sympathize with this. They didn't like to be taxed by the Romans. In fact, they viewed paying taxes as equivalent to treason, which, by the way, makes Matthew and Simon's association that much more sweet, doesn't it? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Yeah, I think think these men forgave one another. 
These zealots were started by Judas the Galilean. He's mentioned in Acts 5.37, who organized, as I said, guerrilla-style forces to commit acts of terror on the Roman government. This guy, Judas uh, the Galilean, different Judas, was eventually killed. But it fumed uh, groups of loyalists that went underground and continued to operate striking terroristic attacks on the Roman government. They expected to die for their cause. They even looked forward to dying for their cause. They often would attack military outposts or patrols by lighting fires and running to the hills for cover. Josephus speaks of the Sicarii, which is a, I think that's a Latin expression for dagger men because they had this technique whereby they would quietly, almost like an army ranger, go up behind someone and stick a dagger through the their back in between their ribs and penetrate their heart, assassinating politicians. They were a highly organized and mobilized militia. This is what Josephus says. He says, of the fourth sect of Jewish philosophy, Judas the Galilean was the author, talking about the originator of the zealots. These men agree in all other things with the Pharisaic notions. But they have an inviolable attachment to liberty and say that God is to be their only ruler and Lord. That's where I want you to pay attention. They also do not value dying any kinds of deaths, nor indeed do they heed the deaths of their relations and friends, nor can any such fear make them call any man Lord. And since this immovable resolution of theirs is well known to a great many, I shall speak no further about that matter, nor am I afraid that anything I have said of them should be disbelieved, but rather fear that what I have said is beneath the resolution they show when they undergo pain. And it was Gessius Florus' time that the nation began to grow mad with this distemper who was our procurator and who occasioned the Jews to go wild with it by the abuse of his authority and to make them revolt from the Romans. In other words, Josephus is saying that the zealots were the originators of what gave rise to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. That was a squelching of the zealots, the, the very group that Simon was a part of, <coughs> excuse me, before coming to know Christ. Again, another reminder of the power of the gospel to save and change anybody. Just as Thaddeus laid down his Israeli flag, Simon laid down his dagger and followed Christ, and in their place came God's word that they both proclaimed zealous for Christ, zealous for the kingdom of Christ. Interestingly, Simon is credited for taking the gospel to the British Isles where he was martyred. Those of us who come from ancestors of the British Isles understand the Scottish Covenanters who fought with that same type of zeal. Really know nothing else of Simon the Zealot except that together with Thaddeus, these men teach us there is only one king. There is only one Lord. Well, Simon started off bad. He's waiting for the long-awaited Messiah. Purely physical, will overthrow Rome. He's converted to Christ. That's Simon the Zealot. Thaddeus, he never was of the Zealots, but he had that same zeal. Christ, why are you not going to reveal yourself to the world in a physical and overt way? What does all of this teach us? I'll start by saying this. It's not our nationality that matters, but our spirituality. Galatians 3. There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Ephesians 2. 1 Peter 2.9, we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Secondly, I would say, as God brings together different cultures different people through the gospel, that is the only means of unity, and that is how the kingdom of God is spread throughout the world. It is the witnessing of the gospel reaching the ends of the globe literally before our eyes, which helps us to see the power and the influence of the gospel and the kingdom of God and the growth of the kingdom of God. I would also say this, it's ridiculous to say that God's law does not play some part in the coming of God's kingdom on earth. Obviously it does. What does Jesus say? If you love me, you will keep my what? Commandments. If you love me, you will keep my what? Word. 
So as Christians live out the law of God, as we seek for even our own culture and government to be marked by the law of God, we are doing the work of God. That is part of our witness. That is part of our testimony. That is part of praying, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're not zealots in the sense that we aren't some fighting militia with some physical focus. No, our focus is spiritual. Paul says the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments, every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. We are warriors of our words and of the truth of the gospel that as we preach it and boldly do so, the kingdom of God breaks through the darkness. How should Christians view the civil government that God ordains for them to be under? It's very simple. Romans 13, verse 4. The civil government is God's servant for your good, not for your bad. Secondly, God's Civil governments are servants for his wrath. So the purpose of government, any government, is to promote good to punish bad. How should Christians view the civil government God ordains for them to be under? They should view it with submission, but not submission at all costs. It's better to obey God than man. And when a government no longer promotes the good and punishes the bad, but promotes the bad and punishes the good, Romans 13 submission is not quite as easy, is it? There's a level to which not submitting is a matter of greater faithfulness to God. That's a short answer. How should Christians view the civil government God ordains for them to be under? Question two that I mentioned at the beginning. What role does God's kingdom play with respect to the civil government? Well, I just would say this. I I read it earlier from Daniel chapter 2. I think that the Old Testament was clear that the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall, that is God's kingdom, stand forever. God's kingdom will crush all wicked kingdoms and vengefully so. You don't have to worry about that. It will happen. It will happen. His kingdom will stand. Here's the third question. How do Christians respond to governmental overreach? These are all related questions. How should Christians view the civil government God ordains for them to be under? What role does God's kingdom play with respect to the civil government? How do Christians respond to governmental overreach? I'll give you one verse, Psalm 24, 8. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. He's the only king of Zion. And he will overthrow all in any tyranny. Any sort of overreach. Anytime a government tries to be God, which is exactly what our government right now is trying to do, they are assaulting God himself. They are trying to overthrow the rule and the reign of God. And for Christians to be silent during this time is the worst of sins. We have a responsibility because we see the kingdom, right? We have spiritual eyes to see the kingdom. We have a responsibility to reveal and manifest that kingdom to the world around us. How do we do that? By proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the goodness of God, living forth His law, keeping His commandments, loving one another, even loving the world enough to tell them the truth when they don't want to hear it. Even if it's governments who overreach. There's one king, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Question four. How involved should Christians get into politics? Well, enough to let the light of the gospel shine in the world. I think for far too long, Christians have said things like this, politics don't belong in church. I understand they were trying to be helpful by saying that, but it's immensely unhelpful during times like this. We need to pray for more godly people in politics to change this culture, to change the world. Not because we believe in politics or we have confidence in the flesh, but because we have confidence in a king that we can actually see. We have spiritual eyes to see. We see. He's manifested himself to us. 
He reveals Himself to us on a daily basis as we commune with Him through the Word and through prayer. How can we not be bold? How can we not proclaim the Gospel? Jesus reveals His kingdom to the world through us. So let us go. Let us reveal His kingdom. Because He will reign until all enemies are placed under His feet. We are soldiers in His army. We wave the banner of Christ. And we pray that His kingdom come and His will be done on earth. On earth as it is in heaven. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we've covered so much ground this morning. Probably too much ground, but Lord, we're so overwhelmed by the breadth and the depth of Your Word. Lord, giving to us guiding principles, Lord, on how to view You as the one and only true King. Help us, Lord, to absorb these truths Lord, help us to grow in greater holiness. Help us to be bold for you. Help us to be zealous for your kingdom. Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come. Lord, we pray that your will would be done. We ask all of these things in the blessed name of Christ. Amen.